0: Welcome to Funny. They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Henry Bernstein. And I'm Brandon Bernstein. No No relation. relation. Hi Brandon. Hey Henry, how you doing? I'm good. We're back. We're back. We have returned. We had an amazing last couple episodes. We we're so, I'm just so grateful that we were interviewed by Oi Chicago, Stephen Chaitman. Shout out. Yeah, real great thanks. It was a really fun experience and like I was so impressed that I was able to distill that long
1: conversation
0: <laughs> into an actual legible article that didn't take forever. Yeah, he had a lot of quotes and things you know long uh, rants from us similar to the podcast that he wrote beautifully into like a nice little narrative actually yeah definitely yeah. so if you're listening and you don't know what we're talking about we were interviewed by oy chicago just google it and um or you can check out our facebook or our twitter and you'll see a really nice article uh, about funny they don't look jewish but today we are talking about a very, very special character in terms of Jewish superheroes.
1: Yeah, arguably the most visible Jewish superhero in all of comics uh, for a long period of time. One who was Jewish right from her very first appearance. And of course, Henry, we are talking about Catherine Kitty
0: Pride, a.k.a. Shadowcat from Marvel's Uncanny X-Men. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. You know, um, as we've mentioned before, Marvel's sort of your thing and DC is sort of my thing. Last Last time we got to really uh, get deep into um, the uh, Batwoman story. And this is exciting to deal with Kitty. It's someone that I think people have asked us if we're going to talk about her. She's sort of right up there with The Thing in terms of Marvel's visible superheroes. So who is Kitty Pride? Great question. So Kitty Pride
1: is the daughter of Carmen and Teresa Pride, and she's from very close to us right now. We're recording here in Chicago, and she grew up in the suburbs in Deerfield, Illinois. Um, started out as a 13-year-old girl who was added to the X-Men, um, really as a desire by her creators to be sort of an entry point character. She's the POV person, this young girl coming to the X-Men not really understanding, and she really becomes the reader surrogate for understanding this strange team of bizarre mutants. So Kitty Pride first appears in Uncanny X-Men number 129, with a cover date of january 1980 so right at the very beginning of 1980 right in this new decade um and it's also right in the middle of the Dark Phoenix saga, which is arguably the most famous X-Men story of all time, the most beloved X-Men story of all time. She appears in the middle of the story um, and officially joins the team in the epilogue of that very same storyline in Uncanny X-Men number 138, which was published in October 1980. So they did a really good job of seeding Kitty Pride as this character who was going to be important and is going to sort of rise up into the ranks of the X-Men. Now here's what's fascinating about her for us to. Start Start with, Henry. As I said, Uncanny X-Men 129, her first appearance. In the third panel that she appears on the page, it's the first time we really get a good look at her and right away we can see that Kitty is wearing a Star of David necklace. Meaning that, right, we talked about the fact that The Thing, who's this iconic Jewish superhero now, wasn't revealed as Jewish until 2002. 22 years before this, right from day one, Kitty Pride was a Jewish superhero. It was never a mystery. It never had to be revealed later. Decades before this was a common thing, and it's not even that common as we're discovering, but decades before we really dove into the religions of most superheroes, we knew that Kitty Pride was Jewish.
0: Yeah, and of course, she's an original character created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Chris Claremont is Jewish, and he has talked about being Jewish many times he has he famously spent time on a kibbutz he is from both England and Chicago so it would it's sort of no surprise that he created a character that's Jewish and what's exciting about this is I actually got to talk to him in April at C2E2 Chicago's Comics and, and Entertainment Expo And I had met him Brandon and I had met him two years before and got him to sign some stuff and I had said, I'm Jewish, so I really appreciate, you know, the Judaism that you've written into your comics and he sort of curmudgeonly didn't say anything and Um,
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that he's of the generation that sort of understands. In that Oi Chicago interview, we were talking how much we really are viewing this through a lens of representation, and I don't know if that language uh, really resonates for him.
0: Yeah, I don't think it did at all. And then when I talked to him last year, I was like, okay, he's here. I got to do something about this for the podcast. So I went up to him and I asked him, you know, Mr. Claremont, I'm doing a podcast on um, Jewish content and comics. Could I ask you a couple questions? And he, you know, very sternly said, if it's quick. And um, I asked him about Kitty and then later asked him about Magneto, who we'll talk about more another time. Um, and he gave me a very short answer Kitty Pride, so we'll give it a listen right now. Great. Why was it so important to have Kitty Pride be explicitly oh, Jewish important. character? It just seemed natural. How so, How we. John gave the
1: visual. The visual had a Star of David on it. She was. I decided she's from Chicago. It all fell on place. It, a lot of things aren't the product of deep dark thought. It, it's
0: it's inspiration and instinct and, hey, this could be cool. Let's do it. Did it mean anything for you personally? As someone who identifies that way? I'd rather,
1: creating a good character is personal, all the other, the ancillary responses I leave to the readers.
0: So as you can hear, he kind of blew me off a little bit and just, and brushed off the idea that Kitty's Judaism was important. He said, that's the way John Byrne drew it, so that's how I wrote her. And I'm... I'm just dubious of this and I'll, and I'll tell you why. I think that Chris Claremont is Kitty Pride. I think he has this name that you wouldn't necessarily associate with someone who is an you know, out Jew, you know, someone you know, Chris Claremont, you know, a, a, you know, it doesn't sound like a, the typical classic traditional Ashkenazi Jewish name. And Kitty Pride, short for Catherine, also a traditionally Christian name. There's nothing necessarily Jewish about the name Pride, um, although it's a cool name. Yeah, um, really cool name. And we'll talk about her 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 name in a little bit. Um, but I I just thought like he he's writing himself into it. That's just how I always imagined it. He kind of blew me off here. Um, but I don't know, Brandon. What do you think about that? Well, a couple things I wanted to be able to say about that. One is I, I don't fully know if he's blowing you off so much as
1: he's looking at it from this different lens right like for him she's jewish that happens to be who she is i don't think he's recognized the importance or how that would resonate with fans but i agree with you i think he in a way he's just writing himself and i don't know if he's you know we always have a hard time sort of recognizing ourselves from the outside and sort of being able to get a sense of who we are and so maybe he doesn't even realize the centrality of Jewishness to his own, not centrality, but the the impact his own Jewishness has on him. But I did want to point out something very important, Henry. It's actually not blowing you off when he says that's just the way John drew her. I did a little bit of uh, researching, as I always love to do, and I actually found on a Tumblr fan site called John Byrne Draws, and I actually found confirmation in numerous other forums online where John is himself posting and talking about this. I found the following quote directly from John Burns. I'm going to read it to you. Kitty, as many of you probably already know, became Jewish almost accidentally. My model for the character was how I pictured a young Sigourney weaver. <laughs> but down the hall in my apartment building at the time lived a friend whose sister bore a strong resemblance to Kitty. Although she was not Jewish herself, the sister wore a Star of David on a chain around her neck it having been given to her by her Jewish boyfriend. Kitty somehow looked wrong without that necklace, so I added it to my final drawings in her first appearance. This made her Jewish, of course, since there would be no other reason for her to
0: be wearing it in the context of the character. Oh my god. Wow. I mean, the way in which Chris spoke to me, I thought for sure he was just blowing me off and annoyed by the question even. And that's amazing. Okay, so I, I mean, I'm not saying I was calling him a liar, but right. I am surprised that that's that it was John Burns who was not Jewish. His, he just that image was in his head that's so interesting yeah i mean i think i love the fact that the two of them are clearly collaborating and
1: have the same memory of what went on it's like john drew it this way and i don't know why he just did and then john dives into it yeah i think it's fascinating that john's like she just didn't look right without it because she looks so much like the sister of this person who lived down the hall from me it's such a funny like six degrees seven degrees of separation sort of thing but it's this happy little accident of sorts that ended up giving us this iconic jewish character
0: yeah well i guess do i owe mr claremont an apology then for doubting him sorry (laughs) claremont if you're listening we apologize (laughs) yeah Um, but thank you for speaking to me i do appreciate that definitely
1: i also want to point out what's interesting that came in he said he based her on a young sigourney weaver and i want to bring that up it's very important it's going to be a good um, segue into our first issue that we're covering because Sigourney Weaver, of course, is famous for starring in the movie Alien. Um, and the first issue we're going to be reviewing really seems like Chris Claremont's take on Alien. Now, we're not talking about the Brood, which are this alien race clearly based on them. We're talking about Uncanny X Men number 143, published in 1981 uh, with a title Demon. Mm. Henry, let's review uh, who put this issue together. Sure. Uncanny
0: X-Men, number 143, 1981. Demon, written by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Penciled by John Byrne. Inked by Terry Austin. Colored by Glynis Oliver. Lettered by Rick Parker and Tom Orzakowski, And edited by Louise Jones, who will later go on to do other X-titles under the name Louise Simonson, who wrote Superman, the Man of Steel during the 90s. Um, and just a longtime collaborator of Chris Claremont and um, famous, famous comic book writer, amazing, brilliant person. Yeah, she's really fantastic. And, like, it holds this sort of special place in history as
1: being the last collaboration on X-Men of Claremont and Byrne. Um, and basically we're following Kitty Pride on a night alone in the X-Mansion on what turns out to be Christmas Eve. Of course. Of course, right? Where (laughs) where else would you be other than alone Alone on Christmas Christmas Eve? (laughs) Um, So let's go into the issue a little bit. We don't need to spend too much time in it, but basically the X-Men are all getting ready to go out for a lovely uh, Christmas Eve, and um, there's this really weird incident where basically uh, Wolverine attacks Nightcrawler over a misunderstanding, and everyone's trying to calm down, and so Kitty Pryde, trying to lighten the mood on page 6, Holds some mistletoe over Colossus's head and winds up kissing him and saying Merry Christmas sexy Um, Of course Colossus turns red um, But you know, I want to bring this up to be able to show that clearly Kitty uh, despite growing up in Deerfield which is a very Jewish suburb um, has a comfort and a relaxed sense around christian celebrations around christian holidays she's not celebrating it herself but she clearly has no problem participating in certain rituals like the mistletoe once all the x-men leave on page eight we get kitty thinking to herself she's so relieved everyone's left and all of a sudden she finds herself down like what am i saying i've never spent hanukkah away from home before I wonder how mom and dad are doing. And so, right, it's this very sweet thing. 13 year old girl who doesn't know what it means to celebrate a holiday on her own. Now I wanna bring up, um, this issue has a publication date of March, 1981. So it's weird because it's a Christmas issue that came out in March. And even if it's just the cover date, that means it came out in January. So this very clearly did not actually come out during Christmas time. And I wanted to do a little bit of looking. Christmas Eve 1980, the Christmas that just had passed before this issue was published, corresponds to the 18th of Tevet in the Hebrew calendar, meaning Hanukkah and Christmas did not overlap (laughs) that year. However, if this is meant to be a peek forward at Christmas 1981, Christmas Eve 1981 indeed corresponds to the 29th of Kislev, which falls during Hanukkah. So we're going to assume that Claremont and Byrne were looking forward and are showing us this evening where it's both Hanukkah and Christmas Eve. Um... And of course at the end of the issue, on page 21, after Kitty has defeated the Engare demon that uh, attacks the mansion and gives Kitty quite the surprise and quite the shock, um, her parents, Carmen and Teresa, show up with the rest of the X-Men late at night um, and respond to Xavier and say, our visit, your special Hanukkah surprise, is as much a gift to us as to her. They're so relieved to be able to celebrate Hanukkah with
0: Kitty again. I want to first say this will come as no surprise to listeners who have listened to previous episodes when there's a Christmas thing, but the cover annoys me that, you know, listen, of course the intention of the issue isn't so that 30 years later, two Jewish boys will be excited that there is a Jewish content in comics, but it's always Christmas. You know, it's like, it's just, why is it always Christmas? And why is the one solo adventure of the one jewish superhero have to be centered around christmas it just annoys me that's all it's you know it's it's just something that nitpicks at me
1: i mean i think in this case i think it's a plot device because like why else would the rest of the team be away because everyone else is celebrating christmas and the whole point of the issue right which we kind of talked about is kitty's alone in the mansion this demon um, enters and it's attacking and it's this whole story really proving that Kitty belongs in the X-Men because she can handle fighting this demon by herself so I think like narratively Christmas was convenient to give an excuse for everyone else to be gone but I, I feel the, the pain of like why does it always have to be it actually brings up a question for me Henry I think that I'm just coming up I don't think this is real but I'm going to throw this at you anyway is this low-key a Hanukkah story and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out my evidence okay, okay. A demonic entity, the Angari demon, attacks the central home of the X-Men, can we view the mansion, as the temple. And a scared underdog, Kitty Pride, perhaps one of the Maccabees, is fighting back, winning with her wits to overthrow this enemy that has um, defiled a sacred space. When the X-Men return home to the mansion, Wolverine notes that there are no lights on, which makes me think of Hanukkah and putting the lights on and what happens when the temple is not purified. And the X-Men need to fix their home. Maybe they need to rededicate or repurify their home after all the danger. And on the final page, we get the narration, alone on Christmas Eve, Kitty Pride underwent a rite of passage, a supreme test of her abilities, her intellect, her courage, herself. She passed. Which makes me think, like, is there a way? Is she sort of, you know, taking it back and, and being a a warrior fighting for her own cause in a certain way? Like, in my head, I was like, this is low-key a Hanukkah story, or,
0: given that she's 13, this was her ex spot Mitzvah. <laughs> she's an ex-Maccabee at her ex spot exactly. Mitzvah. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Listen, it, if it weren't for you right now in this moment... That was that was beautifully said, by the way. Thank you. Um, but if, if it weren't for you in this moment right now, I would give this one out of four, again, David's, for explicitly Jewish content, just right. because she's actually wearing a... Specifically, hey... Right, and acknowledging that Hanukkah yeah. is important to her. Yeah.
1: I'm in agreement with you. I really think I'm reading into it, but yeah. that's part of the fun and having our own podcast. Should we move on to our yeah. next let's issue? let's move on. Great. Uncanny X-Men number 159, published in 1982. We're talking about a story titled Night Screams. Mm-hmm. This is written by Chris Claremont, penciled by Bill Sienkiewicz, inked by Bob Wyacek, colored by Glynis Oliver lettered by rick parker and tom orzakowski and edited once again by louise jones aka louise simonson aka wheezy by the way Mm -hmm. louise is often called wheezy Mm -hmm. the x-men come home to new york they're holed up in a friend's apartment and kitty goes home to visit her family for the weekend and while she goes home storm is quote-unquote mugged in an alley uh, and anyway, by who turns out to be Dracula. Ah, 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 Dracula has oh. a text an eye on her. Um, but Henry, Kitty goes home to visit her family for the weekend, and they make it a point of saying that it's Sunday when she returns, which makes me wonder yeah. is she going home for, for Shabbos? Shabbos. <laughs> I think she went home for Shabbos dinner with her family. <laughs> like, I think that's amazing. That's awesome. Um, you know, it might just be she's technically in school with the X Men. She's going home for a weekend, but I
0: love the idea that she went home for Shabbos with her family. I mean, and that's a like that's a short. I mean, you're flying in New York to Chicago for the weekend. That's a short trip. I mean, you know. So maybe she did just go home at us. Maybe it was someone's family member's bat mitzvah or something. Yeah, who knows what it was. But I love the idea that that's
1: what she's doing. Um, So Kitty returns to the X-Men and Storm is not doing well because she is on her way to being vampirized, Mm. if that's a word. Um, And on page 10, we see Kitty talking with Storm. And in their conversation, all of a sudden, Storm pulls back in pain. Um, And Kitty thinks to herself, the lamplight flashed on my Star of David and aurora flinched aversion to sunlight to religious artifacts anemia dreams this is ridiculous what am i thinking of course what kitty's thinking is is storm becoming a vampire Mm -hmm. um and i love the idea that she just sort of acknowledges like it's not a cross it's a religious artifact that's enough to be able to do this um By page 12, Storm has gone to Dracula. She is completely in his thrall. Um, And Kitty bursts into the room, hoping to save Storm, wielding a cross and going right at
0: Dracula. Um, Okay, I have to say, she is dressed like Indiana Jones. Yes, (laughs) she is.
1: I mean, she's a 13-year-old girl. She's having a great time going on an adventure. Yes, she's dressed like Indiana Jones. She leaps out with a cross. And Henry, uh, how
0: does Dracula respond to her? The cross. The very presence of that holy object should be anathema to me, yet it has absolutely no effect. Little fool, you have outsmarted yourself. The cross has no power over such as I, if the wielder does not believe in it. You are no Christian, but a Hebrew! Ah, ah, ah,
1: ah, ah, ah. Right. He, like, yells at it, which... Henry, how do you feel about, like, I kind
0: of get it, like, it He's Romanian, he's, he's from Ancient. Of, he's
1: ancient. Yeah. Like
0: how do you feel about him calling her a Hebrew? So, you know, it's like one of those things like you see like when I saw it at first, I was like, Is that anti-Semitic? Uh, mm, you know yeah. Um But I think in the context it's not, and since we know it's written by Claremont Claremont, so it's okay. But yeah, yeah. It, it did kinda twinge me at first the first yeah. time I read it. But yeah. I love that you want to know Christian but a Hebrew. Right. You can't <laughs> possibly do this. Um
1: <laughs> So then Dracula lunges for Kitty's throat, puts his hand around her neck, and his hand starts burning as Kitty says, Around my neck, my silver star of David. That's what stopped him. Thank God.
0: Yeah, I love that she thanks God there. (laughs) Right,
1: because she has to, because Kitty, I mean, let's be honest, looking before this, it felt like Kitty was wearing it as maybe like a cultural sign, and I don't know if there was much... um, faith behind it. But the whole point of this issue, because shortly after this Nightcrawler busts in, who is a devout Catholic, one day he becomes a priest actually, um, Nightcrawler holds up a cross and Dracula is severely weakened. Mm -hmm. So this is very much about the idea that a religious object when held by someone who believes in that religion can harm Dracula. And that works. So Kitty is not just culturally Jewish according to this. Kitty is in some ways religiously believing in some higher deity thanking God actively Jewish and stopping Dracula with that. Yeah, Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Um, Which is an interesting take, this being, again, 1982, because three years earlier, we saw a movie. I read this, and I couldn't help but think of this movie. I think I introduced it to you, Henry. There's this really great 1979 horror comedy called Love at First Bite that is this parody movie of Dracula, um, and it's directed by Stan Dragotti, starring George Hamilton as Dracula. Dracula sets his sight on Cindy Sondheim who is played by Susan St. James and of course uh Cindy is dating a Jeffrey Rosenberg played by Richard Benjamin um so Jeffrey Rosenberg is introduces himself as the grandson of Van Helsing who changed his name for quote professional reasons so It's like <laughs> is that a joke in that basically about the idea of like a Jewish or I guess the Jewish name is more helpful than right. the other name it's right, really right, But there's this great scene when the three of them are out to dinner. Dracula, Cindy Sondheim, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. And Jeffrey keeps trying to sort of trick Dracula and weaken him and show that he's a vampire. And so he, like, pulls out a necklace of garlic and things like that. And then Rosenberg is like, Dracula, what do you think of this? And pulls out a Star of David that has absolutely no effect. And I I won't do justice, so we should just play the clip of how Dracula responds.
0: Here it is. You're getting to be a bore, Rosenberg. Von Helsing, Count
1: Dracula. My grandfather was Dr. Fritz von Helsing. I changed my name to Rosenberg for professional reasons. He practiced in London. Is the name familiar to you?
0: Von Helsing. I should have known. Your grandfather was a very wise man. But unfortunately for him, I was wise. Yes,
1: but the race goes on, what
0: Count. What the hell are you men talking about? Are you stoned, Jeffrey? Did you sneak a joint out of my purse?
1: Let him continue, it's most amusing. You won't find this amusing, Count.
0: Put the view there, some some wolfbane?
1: Something more powerful than wolfbane. Well, Count, what do you say to that?
0: I would say leave Cindy alone and find yourself a nice Jewish girl, Doctor. Hmm? Ah, shit, it's the other one, isn't it? <laughs> That's yeah, great. I love it. I'm, thank you for introducing me to that. I've never uh I've never heard I've never heard that seen that movie before, but it reminds me of like, you know, Dracula dead and loving it. Yeah, and, exactly. That I kind
1: of feel and that kind of like very silliness.
0: And we're both Buffy fans, so like it's you know, we have like a soft spot in our heart for versions of Dracula. Definitely. And I would argue that I have a soft spot in my heart for basically uh
1: the occult, the weird, the horrific, this kind of stuff, which made me want to look into a bit Henry, let's just talk very briefly about vampires in Judaism, because believe it or not, even though they're usually a Christian thing they do exist in Judaism so there's this medieval book called Sefer Chassidim, or the Book of the Pious Ones, and in Sefer Chassidim 464, it gives this story that I just want to read to you really quickly I'm um, uh, not going to read the Hebrew, I'll read a translation uh, the story says, there was once a woman that was a stria, and was very sick and there were two women with her at night, one sleeping and one awake. And that same sick woman stood before her and crackled her hair and wanted to fly and wanted to suck the blood of the sleeping woman. Right? So I'm going to pause for reading for a sec. This Stria, this sick woman who seems to be sick, seems to be a vampire because she wants to fly and she wants to suck the blood of the sleeping woman. The text continues, And the one that was awake woke up the one who was asleep, and they grabbed the stria. And the one that slept slept more, and the one that was awake did not sleep. And since she couldn't do harm, the stria died, because she had needed that which comes from the blood to swallow the blood and the flesh. So it's just this weird story that's suddenly appearing in this book that clearly seems to be showing that like vampires
0: are a thing in Judaism. Hmm. Wow. I... Yeah, I always wondered, like, the connection there, if there was a connection there. I guess we have, there's precedent for that, so that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I think just Jews are always influenced by their surrounding cultures. So mm-hmm. in, like, medieval Ashkenaz, right, meaning that we're talking about medieval France and Germany surrounded by Christian and Catholic uh, conceptions, if mainstream society was worried about these vampires, then I'm not surprised
0: that these medieval pious rabbis also were concerned about vampires. Right, Maybe and maybe this is for another time, but... Or another podcast but you know i don't know vlad the impaler upon whom dracula is is based i I wonder you know what his connections were to jewish communities or anything like that you know yeah that'd be interesting
1: to look into and to see like was there a jewish
0: community around where that story
1: came right was you know was he a sort of not a cossack but something similar like running
0: pogroms against jewish people possible yeah so shall we look at our next issue yeah that sounds great Next issue is Uncanny X-Men number 199, 1985, The Spiral Path, written by Chris Claremont, penciled by John Romita Jr., J.R.J.R., inked by Dan Green, colored by Glynis Oliver, lettered by Rick Parker and Tom Orzakowski. And edited by Ann Nocenti. Yeah,
1: who's also a wonderful writer in and of her own right. Uh, really? Yeah, Ann Nocenti goes on to write some interesting Daredevil stuff. Ah. And for you, I think she's written a few X-Men pieces also. Mostly, if I'm recalling correctly, some long shot stuff. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. Hmm. But anyway, um, so we're in the spiral path. And we are we come upon this really fascinating of story on page 13. Most of the issue is completely unrelated to this, so we're not going to touch on it. Um, But on page 13, we find ourselves in Washington, D.C., and specifically at the National Holocaust Memorial. Um, I found myself wondering just what they mean by this, because I did a little uh, peeking around, and I found out that the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, of course, Congress voted to establish it in 1980. And this is 1985, so you'd think it'd be around. But this museum didn't actually open up to the public until April 22nd,
0: 1993. Right. So, Henry, do you have any idea what it is that what this memorial is? So funny. I looked up the same thing because I had this memory of being in middle school the, around the time when I was reading a lot of comics. Mm-hmm. But when they opened up the famous museum in DC, and I remember President Clinton and you know uh, inaugurating it. And so I'm wondering what this National Holocaust Memorial is, as they call it in the issue. There must have been a Holocaust museum in D.C., maybe, and maybe it was called the National Holocaust Memorial. I don't know. Right,
1: or I think probably in the space where the museum opened up before the museum was fully built, they just had a memorial, and that memorial became... Because it is... United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. So I imagine before it opened as, a memo- as an actual museum, it was probably just a memorial okay. and that there was a space where people could gather. That's yeah. the best I could guess. If
0: other folks out there know more information about what was there in D.C. before the National Holocaust Museum that we know of today, we'd love to hear it. Tweet us, Facebook us. Yeah, definitely.
1: So we're on page 13 of this comic, and once we go in, we see somebody who's at a microphone saying, We are gathered on this Remembrance Day to honor those who endured a horror unlike any ever experienced in human history, the systematic, institutionalized extermination of one people by another. Um, and Henry, I found myself asking, well, what day do they mean when they say on this day? So my first thought was given this is in the United States, maybe this is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Now, Which international- is different than Yom HaShoah. Yeah, sure. I'm going to okay. get into all of this. Don't yeah. worry. So, International Holocaust Remembrance Day, January 27th, um, the date chosen because that's when the Soviet army liberated Auschwitz Birkenau. Mm. Um, but that day was not designated until. November 1st, 2005, by UN General Assembly Resolution 60/7. Uh, so, can't be International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's beating it by two decades. So, my second thought was: oh, this must be Yom HaShoah, which is the Jewish or Israeli. Holocaust Remembrance Day. It occurs every year on the 27th of Nissan, which is roughly in April or May, depending on the year. Um, it was established April 8th, 1959 by the Knesset in Israel. However, I don't think that this would, the U.S. would really care about the Israeli day, so I found out that most likely this is a day that no longer exists or is much less observed, um, this is the Days of Remembrance of the Victims of the Holocaust, which actually came about as a joint resolution from the House of Representatives, Joint Resolution 1014, which designated April 28th and 29th, 1979, as these Days of Remembrance of the Victims of the Holocaust. Hmm. Um, the days were specifically chosen to reflect the days on which American troops liberated Dachau. So I think that given this is 1985 it seems that throughout the 80s and into the 90s um dc and the u.s would observe the days of remembrance of the victims on april twenty eighth and 29th and from what i could see i think what we're about to see in this comic is the kind of thing that would happen on these days that mm-hmm. it would be a time of gathering for holocaust survivors in the united states
0: right, you know i grew up going to jewish day school so you know the i Yom HaShoah, we definitely the whole day was devoted to that and even the week leading up you know we'd be learning about the holocaust but um i yeah i have no recollection of another day i didn't even know about international holocaust day to like the internet right you know? well i mean that's also when it started 2005 yeah. was international holocaust remembrance day right. so
1: right it's not too surprising right um But yeah, uh, apparently we have this gathering that used to exist that seems to either not be observed anymore, which is not surprising given that there's an international day of observance and there is a particularly Jewish day of observance, but there used to be this American day of observance and... Kitty Pride is there, not alone, but with another Jewish X-Man, um, who we'll cover in a later episode. She's there with Magneto. Um, now, Magneto is infamously an X-Men villain who, in this point in time, is on his way towards redemption and really actually being a member of the team. And Kitty and Magneto, um, we didn't cover it, but there's an issue in Uncanny X-Men number 150, Magneto's attacking the team, and he almost kills Kitty Pride, and he realizes that she's a young Jewish girl. And he's sort of taken aback by what he did. And really it's this Jewish connection that brings Magneto and Kitty Pride together. And it's this really lovely thing to see as the two of them share this common bond. And Magneto is sort of guiding Kitty Pride, who's very nervous. This is clearly her first time here, whereas Magneto has been to this observance before. Um, and Magneto explains to Kitty that people present um, are either survivors or relatives of survivors. They're gonna take turns going to the podium saying the names of their relatives in hopes of reunion or hearing
0: anybody who might say, oh, I knew that person, I can tell you what happened to them. Magneto is famously a survivor of the camps, and anyone who's seen, you know, we just wrapped up the X-Men movies, but anyone who's seen the original X-Men movie from the year 2000, the opening scene is a teenage Magneto, Eric Lyncher. Uh, crushing the gates of Auschwitz with with his magnetic powers right and of course that
1: scene is more or less repeated or done in a different way in x-men first class and a big Story beat in that movie is Magneto hunting down Nazis later, which is amazing. We really watch an entire movie of Magneto hunting Nazis. It's really a Blancheer <laughs> Nazi hunter. Yes,
0: yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: yeah, so this is a key part of Magneto's character and who he is. And um, you know, we brought up earlier the fact that Pride is kind of an interesting, not necessarily Jewish name. And at the bottom of this page, Kitty Pride gets up and uh, introduces herself as Catherine Pride from Chicago, and she says the following. I'm here for my grandfather, Samuel Prideman. He wanted to be here more than anything, but he died last year. He had a sister, my great-aunt Chava. She lived in Warsaw before the war. He tried to find her, but there was no record anywhere. It was like she'd been erased as if she'd never been. Um. So, so much there. Yeah. Let's just start with the light stuff, which is... Kitty Pride's family's original last name was Pride, men, Pride men. and they shortened it when yeah. they came to America. Okay, I mean, there it is. Right, that answers the question. Totally. Well, and like it's just so funny. You just add men to the end, and all of yeah. a sudden, like Pride men. I'm like, I don't think I've actually heard that last no. name, but
0: I'm like, oh, sounds more Jewish. Right, or could have been Pridestein or Prideberg, right,
1: know? right, or whatever it would be. Yeah, I would, like love the idea. Prideowitz, Prideowitz, yeah. <laughs> uh, Catherine Prideowitz. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: right. So. We've got this sort of Jewish last name now. And her great-aunt um, lived in Warsaw before the war. Right. So it sounds like the Prides escaped, or I guess the Prides escaped. Yeah, or... that side of the family must have come yeah. to America or escaped.
1: Yeah. Now on page 14... Um, Magneto basically asks, like, oh, do you have a photo of
0: her? So, meaning they hadn't had a conversation about her relatives beforehand. No, that's Sounds like not. he's surprised about that. He right. And wants to know, maybe there's a connection here, which is amazing. Right. I mean, like, I, I, I wrote this later. Basically, we're about to
1: see a comic book version of Jewish geography. <laughs> it's so great yeah. to be able to see. So, right. So, Magneto asks, he's like, I knew a Chava, but her name was Chava Rosanoff right? She wasn't Chava Prideman, Um, And he knew her in Auschwitz. Yeah. Oh, and here's the answer to our question. When he asks her, Kitty says she was just a kid when grandpa emigrated to the United States. So his family, his side of the family got out. She was a kid. Um, And then all of a sudden, Magneto and Kitty are approached by this lovely couple, Mm. Ruth and David Shulman, that pop up and they recognize Magneto. And like, I can't believe it's you. How are you? David starts talking to Kitty And they actually say, we knew your aunt, we knew Chava, and she is Chava Rosanoff. She ended up marrying a guy, and Rosanoff became her last name. And we were in the resistance after the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. We were all
0: sent to Auschwitz. She died there, and they all survived. And she says, we would have too, if not for this scoundrel. He'd been at the cursed place from the very start. He saved many of us. And then Magneto says not enough for ruth which shows that he saved some folks right in the camps or in you know before they went to the camps or after i mean he he maybe he you know that scene that in x-men you know where he's crushing the gates of maybe it's not too far off maybe he actually used his powers to help help fellow jews in the in the camps yeah which is it's incredible to think of um you yeah. tried my friend You gave us the courage and strength to endure. This is important because this is the number one villain of the X-Men. Right. The helmet is off. Right. The magnetic powers aren't there, aren't present. They're irrelevant. This is just a human being and a Jew connecting with other Jew. And Kitty, who is getting to hear these things about Eric... This is a person who tried to kill her at one point. Right, and I think it's really important to stress that at this point in the ongoing X-Men narrative, Claremont
1: is doing really hard work, as I mentioned, to redeem Magneto and to show that he's essentially going through a process of chuva and trying to become of repentance and trying to become a better human being. So Claremont is very intentionally showing us Magneto's not all bad. In fact, he was a hero. In the Holocaust, in the darkest time, arguably, of human history, at a point when there was no hope, Magneto was saving lives and was doing... Right, he's adding these wrinkles of nuance to Magneto's character. Um, and I love it because it's not showing, like, look at this villainous, evil Jew that survived the Holocaust and became bitter because of it. It's 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 valorizing Magneto. It's sort of showing, you know... Especially the humility he shows, right? I didn't save enough. I'm not really a hero. Let's actually read that if you don't mind uh, You can go ahead and be Magneto. So okay. Kitty Pride
0: looks to Magneto right after learning all this and says You were a hero Hardly in those days heroism meant holding onto one's humanity While the Nazis tried their best to turn us into animals the way to defeat them to defeat them was to lie to hold on to hope, no matter what. Believe me, Kitty. I was no one special. If I am a hero, then so is every other man and woman who survived. You know, I think here where I where I sort of thought that um, Claremont was Kitty earlier. Here, I think he's Eric. I think you know he's the the. He, he he Chris Claremont was the one who made um, Magneto a complicated personality, a survivor of the Holocaust, and took him on the path towards redemption. And even just in this page that he's writing him, like you said, he's playing Jewish geography, you know, and he he usually has such a cold metal pun intended exterior all the time. But here his guard is completely broken down when he's seeing his lanceman he he's just like a regular i've never seen magneto like this and since because even when he's talking about his judaism it's always about the holocaust and it's usually with anger and fire right um it's like the reason he became a villain um but here he says in that previous panel he says Ruth? David? And then this that sweet old man says, I'm David Shulman. You know, right, it's just like, right. it's like, it, it, it could, they it could be at kiddish, you know. Yeah. But totally. It, right. I mean, again, it's just, it's just Jewish geography
1: on the page and it's sort of the connections that happen and, you know, Magneto and Kitty getting to learn more about, that surprise that happens when you discover, right, that like two people you know and didn't realize knew each other and like how you know them right like all the connections just sort of help you like oh I didn't know you went to camp with that person me right. about your time at camp or
0: whatever it might be yeah. right and that happens a lot when survivors meet each other one of the first questions they ask af- after they find out where they were oh did you know so and so and often they do yeah um
1: I have a friend who always theorized that this, like, goes back to our tribal identity as Jews, going back to the 12 tribes. Like, we're always trying to figure out, like, how do I know this person, and how do they fit into mm. the tribal network, the sort of thing. Like, who do you know? How can I fit you in? Okay, cool. This is our relationship to each other. And he thinks it goes all the way back to our biblical
0: roots. Interesting. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's an interesting I like, idea. I like that theory. I want to say... So, uh, that panel that... Where Kitty says, you are a hero, and he says, believe me, Kitty, I was no one special that's the end of this Jewish story because the villain Mystique interrupts and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants come in. And I have to say, I know that this is a comic book and I know that this is an X-Men comic book and I know that the X-Men have to fight bad guys in order to make, to make it an X-Men comic book, but this really annoyed me. It felt like this conversation was cut short. I feel like I needed one more page of this, of this mm. exploration of both the relationship between Kitty and Magneto through their Judaism, Magneto being human, and maybe it, maybe it's good, maybe it left me wanting more, but it's not like we see this again. I mean, right. we see other stuff again. Right. And, you know, it's it annoyed me. Like, I, I went, you know, in the next page, you know, Magneto goes into full Magneto mode and starts fighting, and I, I was kind of like, no, 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 I want more, I want to meet, you know, the Sh- okay, we met the Schullmans. who else is there, you right. know? Well, we actually... First of all, like, that's just what X Men does. Like,
1: part of the reason X Men was so popular is because it was such a good blend of interpersonal dynamics, melodrama, and then the action scenes, right? And that's what it did best, was going back and forth. I actually want to point out there's a tiny bit more of the Jewish story in this issue. Let's just walk through it. Please. Um, At the bottom of the panel, when Mystique reveals that she's been in hiding all this time, um, she does essentially say Magneto is as bad as the Nazis. Yes. Right? Which is a really strong attack. She says, And what, pray tell, would your doting admirers say, Magneto, if they knew the truth, that you've become one of the most feared criminals on the earth, a man as cruel and heartless and full of hate as any Nazi ever born. Um. And it just reads really differently in 2019. I don't want to get too deep at all into Israel issues, but it's just uh, calling someone who's Jewish as bad as a Nazi. It it, it stings in a certain way that's, I think, a little worse now than when it was originally
0: Yeah, and he is a villain and he has killed a lot of people canonically in the comics, a lot of humans, and even some mutants um, who fought against him. But in the context of the Holocaust, he is not a villain right and and that's what i think the point they're trying to make so i think what it does is it makes mystique more villainous in comparison to magneto it's like you know they they want to remind us that magnet who magneto was and is but they still he's not a villain in this story right and again i think I think Claremont, whether
1: consciously or not, is really writing a story that's a model of Chuva and what it means mm-hmm. to go back to who you were. Like This is going to lead into the famous 200th issue of X-Men, where Magneto gets the trial of Magneto, where he's put on trial for his crimes, and he fully takes responsibility. And I think that taking responsibility and acknowledging, I did wrong, that's a huge part of Chuva, and that's mm-hmm. a huge part of becoming someone better. And it's going to lead to Magneto becoming part of the X-Men and headmaster of the Academy for the New Mutants. Um, which is really, again, Magneto trying to walk a more just path and trying to do chuva. So that's going to be really lovely. Let's move back to Kitty Pride though. On page 16, at the top of the page, Kitty says to Magneto, Let's scram. This is like hollowed ground. We can't fight here. Mm-hmm. And there's too much risk of hurting innocent people. How often in comic books... In comic books, they constantly ignore collateral damage and what's going to get destroyed and here's Kitty being like this is a holocaust memorial we can't fight here this is like sacred ground which this is also where I really hear Claremont coming through the holocaust is clearly a topic that Claremont views with a sort of hushed voice not like a sense of this is really sacred important stuff right we're remembering this and it goes a little bit further on page 17 the x-men come to save and colossus bursts through the door what does kitty say Colossus, why didn't you let me phase you inside? We don't want to wreck the memorial. Mm. And I just really love that even as we're getting into, right? Like you wanted a little bit more of that page of Jewish geography and we didn't get that. But as we transitioned to full-blown superhero battle, I love the fact that Kitty Pride is almost tearfully being like, no, we can't fight. This is a Holocaust memorial. We don't, don't wreck it, X-Men. Don't wreck it, Brotherhood. This is mm. a sacred place. And
0: I just, I, um...
1: You appreciate I that. I appreciate that yeah. a lot.
0: That, it's, a, it's a very tiny little um, beat, but it's it's important nonetheless. And you know, and and we see that in superhero comics. Yeah, there's like there's there's two things. There's the distro- you know, fighting on the streets of Metropolis through office buildings, which has like both comedic beats and like wanton destruction and you're like right. what are people getting killed here or what right. and there's that thing where superheroes will take the fight elsewhere you know to a remote desert or so no one gets hurt or to the moon or something right you know um so it's interesting that kitty is uh you don't really hear much discussion about it usually it's just kitty's playing that out but right dafka specifically because this is a holocaust memorial it's right like you said sacred ground and yeah right. i think that subject is sacred ground for for Claremont. That's going to do it for our exploration on Kitty through Claremont's eyes. Um, In the next episode, we'll be looking at three more stories. Um, And I think throughout history, X-Men history, like you said, there are those little notes here and there. I think obviously this third issue is the most explicitly Jewish. It it, It does kind of sting a little bit that... The two, and we talked about this previously, um, both in our conversation and um, on air, that it's a, it stings a little bit when the two associations with Judaism in pop culture are Hanukkah and the Holocaust, and really like this, these you know this kitty stuff in these first few issues we've seen. That's really what we get, um, you know, with the with the with the one exception. So. That kind of stings a little bit, but... um, But thankfully, change is coming, and in next episode, although we will have a Hanukkah issue,
1: we're going to be looking at two very different takes on Jewish content in the comic book. We're going to be looking at more Jewish rituals. We're going to be looking at pride and Jewish identity. I am so excited... For us to continue this conversation next time, Henry.
0: Me too. Thanks,
1: Brandon. No problem. Thank you. And so, uh, saying goodbye for now, I'm Brandon Bernstein.
0: I'm Henry Bernstein. No No relation. relation. You can follow us on Twitter at Jewish Comics Pod, on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Jewish Comics Pod, or you can email us at Jewish Comics Podcast at Gmail.com.